Liberty in America is under assault. We no longer live in a reality that includes property rights. We're no longer the kings of our own castle. We no longer enjoy the true benefits of capitalism. Instead, we're negotiating our rights with our own government. This isn't how our country was founded. These aren't the ideas of our founders. It's time to seize back our country. This is the Liberty Hour, where these important issues will be discussed for the sake of America's future. With a cigar in one hand and a copy of the Constitution in the other, here's your host, Sean Thompson. Welcome to the Liberty Hour. There are two Charles loves talking right now. Echo, echo, echo. And now it's just me. Welcome to the show. Back for another week. Got a lot to cover here. And I um, hope you stick with me and you're going to learn a lot and um, really enjoy the show today, I'm sure. I want to get to my guest here to talk about some serious things that we've been going through for several months here and get a a different take on it. It is Bert Eiler. He is the vice president of the National Center for Police Defense. He recently retired from the Prince William County, Virginia Police Department after over 20 years of service and is now obviously the VP of NCPD. Bert, welcome to the Liberty Hour. Thank you very much, Charles. How are you doing this evening? Thanks for having me on. Doing quite well. Thanks for coming on. I think uh, people are going to really enjoy this segment because obviously police has been in the news for for good, or, better or worse, for the last uh, six, seven months. And um, you do some interesting things there. And why don't you start off by telling people what the organization is, when it was started and what you try to do? Sure. Uh, National Center for Police Defense is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We were formed in 2015, and which were helping officers who are being criminally charged for doing their jobs. And they, and that's the way they have been, you know, it's the way they've been trained. So um, the way we're helping them out is by raising money to help the officers uh, financially for their legal and personal expenses is the big big way we're helping them out right now we're, we're, we're currently helping 12 officers nationwide uh, we have given out over sixty thousand dollars this year alone uh, since we started in 2015 we've given over a million dollars to help officers in mm-hmm. you know in that pursuit of uh criminal action which you know they're just doing their job to the way they've been trained and that's the biggest issue i have Right. Well, see, that's really important and interesting because we focus so much as a nation in all this uh, BLM and all this other stuff. We focus so much on police shootings, bad police videos, all this other stuff we talk about. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this country and there's a lot of officers. So some, there, there'll be some uh, mistakes and there'll be some, you know, really bad people who did some bad things. But we get to a point where we paint it all the same way. And now we're in a time where there's a large amount of anti-police sentiment. And it doesn't matter that some, and you, you interview some of these people and they'll say, no, we know that there's some good cops. We just think there's some bad, bad apples in the bunch and this kind of stuff. That's not really the issue. Really what the issue is, is forget about how we argue what percentage is good or bad. What they, what they perceive is that 100% 
of the interactions that make national news, the police officer is bad. So we, we, we look at the video in this video, we talk about the complaints of the protests of the marching, but everybody in this country deserves a defense, and we just go in assuming that the officer is wrong. So what happens in these situations where that's not the case? I know, for instance, later on in the show, I'm going to interview the director of uh, What Killed Michael Brown, and every obviously that was uh, one of the catalysts for the BLM movement and a lot of other movements, but all the evidence says that the officer did nothing wrong. So what happens to his life? Right. I mean, he was fortunate enough that they decided not to uh, the grand jury decided not to indict. But in these situations, the point is that every officer isn't necessarily wrong. And that's the way we paint it. No, that That's that's correct, Carl. I mean, a lot of these cases with today in video, um, everybody's looking at it and doing Monday night quarterbacking it. <clears throat> Excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, instead of looking at it through the eyes of the officer which the Supreme Court says that you have to do, uh, they're just saying, well, you shouldn't have done that way. Well, they have a split second to make a decision whether they're going to live or die, and that's what they have to do. And now they're afraid to even make that decision because they're afraid they're going go to go to prison for the rest of their lives. Right. And not only are they Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, but they're taking the, the 30 seconds that the biased media decided to put on the news of a clip that's actually, you know, 45 minutes. Right. So it's not even like they're judging the whole thing. They're taking a segment out and they're judging what's going on there. So you're I talked to you and I said I wanted to. It's a a bonus. You reached out to me. We were talking about your organization. But I talk a lot. I talk a lot about BLM and a lot about education. And part of what they want to do is, you know, we hear the rhetoric about defund the police, but it doesn't really mean defund the police. They mean abolish the police. And in the last few years, uh, as a police officer, you were also a school resource officer. And, you know, I know one of the things they want to do, BLM, is to remove officers, and, and actually, based on their words, all security, really, but from the school. So tell us what that job was like and what the impact would be if the uh, school resource officers were removed. Well, I think, I think that would be catastrophic. I mean, as a police officer, as, as an SRO in a high school for the past four and a half years before I retired, was it, we're not there just for, you know, security or just, you know, everybody thinks locking up the kids. We're there as mentors. Um, I taught classes on distractive driving. You know, we, we went and spoke to kids about law enforcement, uh, drugs. I had uh, other officers. We have a ICAC unit, which is a crimes against children. I'd have them come in and, and speak to my uh, kids in reference to child exploitation and and internet safety to get the word out on, you know, what not to do and how to save themselves. We're not there to lock the kids up. We're there to keep them safe and teach them things that they can do to prevent getting in trouble. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, but they need some positive uh, role models and things in the school. And, and and not that they all are, but I would assume a lot of them are men, and there's very few male teachers, so that would be a bonus, too. We're talking to Bert Eiler. He is the VP of National Center for Police Defense. Um, I, before we go to the break, I want to ask you a quick question about, sure. since you since you look at these situations, in, whether you, you try to help these officers, you obviously look at the cases and you were an officer for over 20 years. You've been in situations. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are one or two 
big miss would you say to the average you know layman who's not a police officer and hasn't had these negative uh, police rea- uh, interactions the 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 myths that they believe in these situations with the way we as the average citizen look at the video and think xyz or think or, or it, it could just be more general about at going to the job as a police officer and things you encounter good or bad that you do every day that people don't think about what do you want what would an officer, the typical officer want people to know about the job just that, you know, we go out there every day not knowing if we're going to come back, right? I mean, we're dealing with things that are constantly bad. When we go to somebody's house, it's always, you know, a lot of times it's dealing with the negativity. It's, you know, we're trying to diffuse the situation the best way we know how and the way we've been trained. We have to make that decision. Sometimes you know, that person is not going to like the decision, but based on the law that we have to follow, we have to make an arrest, you know, and I went through all my life, my law enforcement life, basically philosophy is treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, you respect the individual. It goes both ways, but whether I'm not being, you know, being disrespected in the uniform and, you know, not being treated the way, you know, a normal person would be, you still don't act that way. You still treat them the way you want to be treated and you try and diffuse the situation. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Right. I think that um, the bigger problem is that, I mean, and that's important to note, but we look at these interactions and we pay more attention to, it's like the noise. So we pay more attention to the interactions that they show us on uh, on the news and we forget just the insane volume of police interactions that go on every year. So you, they argue about whether 500 or 1,000 or a, some given number is, is a high number. Is it, is it a high enough that we can say that's an epidemic? But no one looks at what the you, you're not looking at the full equation. I'm like, you look at all the officers and how many interactions they have in a day. It's it's an insane number because you got to figure every time they meet someone, especially if you're a uniformed officer, that's an interaction, right? When you go to lunch and you sit in a restaurant, especially today with all these anti-police people, if they go out there and they and they throw something at you or they try to be rude to you and you do nothing and you remain calm, you walk away. That was an interaction that counts too. So I think that that's important. I mean, in conjunction with what you said, it's important for people to know that. Well, we're coming up to the break and when we come back, I want you to give me some specific cases that your organization is working on so people can kind of understand the work you do. We're talking to Bert Eiler, Vice President of the National Center of Police Defense. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. It's the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. We are talking to Bert Eiler, the vice president of the National Center for Police Defense. And before we went to break, he was telling me what he wanted people to know and understand that his philosophy is to treat people the way he wants to be treated, but it doesn't always uh, work out uh, from the other side. See, people forget that the public doesn't necessarily play from the same playbook all the time. And there are actually criminals, contrary to uh, the 1619 Project's belief and several others. And you, you were going to give me, uh, Bert, some of uh, 
a couple of the cases you were working on, but I want to know if you, I'm sure you you may or may not have heard of this one, but a, a few weeks back, I was so upset when I saw the video, I was talking about an officer, I believe his last name is Oxford, in uh, Gwinnett, Georgia, who was terminated for an altercation he had with a woman that was on video. So, so he's a white officer. Everybody in the video was black. I think they were all women except for the little boy who was the son of the woman who called the police. And he was extremely cordial to him and her because they were the complainants. They, she, he went over to talk to the people to uh, do his investigation. And they were uh, belligerent. They told him to get off the lawn. They did all you know the typical stuff. This woman said, I'm not going to listen to you. And he tased her, blah, 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 arrest her. And, and the interesting thing about this case was it's perfect because it doesn't go as extreme as the shooting cases, so no one got shot. And this this will show you, give you a sign of the people you would know because you do these cases, but give people a sign of where we are today. His police department said, ran three investigations, and they said on the use of force, he was okay. On the procedure, he was okay. He did his job right, but you're fired. They claim he wasn't courteous, you know, but how courteous can you be when people are like yelling at you and being violent? But whatever. So this is what's happening. So I, I, I'm assuming some of you got some good cases for me, but it's going to be more of the, more of the same. You know, somebody attacks him and then he's a bad guy for defending himself. Yes, Charles. Correct. Well, the first one I wanted to talk about uh, was actually former trooper uh, Mark Brestner out of uh, Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why this one's kind of hit home, he's the he's the only officer that we've helped that was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Um, he is currently serving five to 15 years in, in prison in Michigan, but his case was dealing with him and his partner w- were in patrol. This happened back in August of 2017. They're pro- patrolling the most uh, day- violent area of East side of Detroit. They call it the red zone. Why they were patrolling an ATV was driving, and I'm not sure if you're familiar, um, in Detroit they have a big issue with uh, all-terrain vehicles, ATVs, dirt bikes just roaming free down the streets. Mm-hmm. Well, this one ATV was driving at a high rate of speed in 25 mile an hour zone and decided to play chicken with his cruiser. So they swerved to miss him, basically turned around, went after him, uh, pursuit happened uh, for Trooper Bester and his partner's safety, he, he saw that, you know, he was reaching in an area to his waistband. So he, the only thing he had in his hand at the time was a taser. He deployed the taser. A short time later, uh, he crashed into a parked car and tragically, uh, he succumbed to his injuries at, in route to the hospital. Um, the reason why I bring this case up is dealing with the first trial ended up in a hung jury. The second trial where he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, during jury selection, the jury pool was openly hostile, screaming out obscenities about police, Black Lives Matter, and the whole jury pool heard it. Now, Mark's attorney asked for a new jury panel after this took place, and the presiding judge denied it. And he eventually was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. So my biggest question with that and what bothers me is how can somebody, whether he's a police officer or not, get a fair trial when you have a jury or jury pool that's already angry at the defendant? Right. Yeah, that's true. um, 
that that's one of the, one of our cases. Our second one is that we're we're actually actively helping. Uh, we're actively helping uh, Trooper Bessner on his appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sad thing with Trooper Bessner is, you know, he's away from his family. He's married, has one one child. Um, because of Corona, uh, he hasn't been able to have any type of visits for the past seven months. So he hasn't seen his his family in over seven months. Which oh, you mean you you mean he hasn't been released? I, I thought you just get oh, out of no. jail if, since Corona. Everybody gets out of jail. Yeah, uh, probably not because he's a police officer. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, he was an officer, right? He gets to say, okay. Right. Uh, What's your your other case? What's your current case? Well, the the next one is Giovanni Crespo out of Newark, New Jersey. Um, He he has been charged with aggravated uh, manslaughter, aggravated assault, two counts of possession of a weapon for unlawful purpose, and official misconduct. Now, this case was... They were backing up another officer after a traffic stop turned into a pursuit because when the officer walked up, the individual had a gun in between his legs. So after the pursuit ended, as they go up to the vehicle, uh, you know, Officer Crespo sees that he has a gun. He gives him commands. Nothing happens. He shoots, kills him, and now he's being charged. Um, He's married. He has four kids, lost his job. I, I have a, a question. I'm, I, you know, it's a layman's question. It just seems odd to me. Um, what was the unlawful possession of a weapon that he had? Uh, don't know. I, I'm not familiar <laughs> with New Jersey law. But oh, but in New right, Jersey, apparently cops can't have guns. Who knew? Well, I, I think what they're <laughs> trying to say with possession of a weapon, he had the possession of a weapon under doing an unlawful purpose. So they're saying when he shot, it was unlawful. That's what I get out of it. Well, that's some crazy leftist gymnastics. <laughs> yes, it is. Wow. So, so, so tell us. Okay. So that's, that's one of the active and, ones. Right. Yep. And the other active one is uh, Drew Delkey. He's in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Now, this took place back in uh, July 2018. Uh, he originally had stopped the vehicle. The vehicle took off and he lost it, stopped pursuing it, went into an area pulled up where he thought he saw the vehicle, matched the same description, but he just gets out to talk to the individuals that were standing outside the vehicle, just kind of like a consensual encounter. One individual took off running. He chased after him. He realized that the guy was running with a gun in his hand. As he was running, he was giving him commands to put the weapon down. He refused. So for his safety, plus, you know, other officers and innocent bystanders, he ended up shooting one time, shot him, killed him, but the minister first day, but he ended up passing away. Um, he has been charged with murder. And again, his trial is probably set for next year. Most of our cases are next year due to the COVID. Right. So uh, you see explain what, that what, one to me. What people don't understand I don't you know what, what your views are on the police. I mean, it matters to police. I guess it matters so much to me. I'm, I'm just a logical guy. I really don't care. It doesn't matter what you feel. But let's use some common sense. People have been talking about the Ferguson effect and how pe- police will be less likely to do X, Y and Z. And unless they're called, they won't be proactive. That may be true. But we're getting to the points where it's worse than that. Right. So now you got a guy running down the street with a gun. And if you shoot him, it's like he's running because, you know, thing, it's dark and people adrenaline's going on and people's moving around. So you might shoot him in the back. 
Right. So you should just not shoot. So now you're talking about not chasing him. So you got a guy who's already committed a crime who has a weapon running through your neighborhood and you don't want the police to stop him. How do you think that's going to be good? You know, I just heard one of the BLM people talking about, yeah, we want to uh, abolish the police because that's what they really want people not to fund. And at least he's one of the few honest ones. And um, and he said, yeah, we want to replace it with something different. What's something different? Even if I give you your argument, you replace it with normal people, police in the neighborhood. Normal people will shoot you when you're running through their neighborhoods with weapons. So, I mean, what, what you're doing is important. And, uh, you know, tell pe- tell the people how they can help. Yes, um, you can go to our website, National Center for Police Defense, and get on the website. You can hit the donate button, and you can donate that way. There's also our address. You can send a check straight to us. Um, all the proceeds do go to the officers. This is 100% nonprofit, so uh, that's basically how we do it. Um, plus, we do you know some direct mail, but most most of it comes from donors you know, that are out there. We just hope we can get more people that support the police and understand that police are not bad. We're just not. You know, we're trying to help people. and We have to make that decision. Well, I appreciate your time, uh, Bert. We learned a lot, and it's good to hear about what you do. He is Bert Eiler, the VP of National Center for Police Defense. When we come back, we'll talk to Dove Hyken about the attacks on the Jewish community by the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. Now, back to the Liberty Hour. Call Sean now at 312-642-5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. If you were listening, and I hope you were listening because you should be listening every week. Last week, during our segment with the Frustrated Democrat, he was updating me on Chicago. I was telling him about New York, and I was telling him about the craziness going on in Brooklyn and the protests and the lockdowns and said it looked like it did back in March here. They're closing everything down, and the governor's attacking the Jewish community, and it was all kind of craziness. And it didn't seem like it was a national story, so I wanted to uh, dig in deeper, and I called up a friend. When you know some people that's integral in the situation, you're lucky. So I called up Dove Hyken. And he was able to come on with me and record an interview uh, with me. So this is our interview about what's going on in Brooklyn. Dove Hyken is a former New York City Assemblyman, founder of Americans Against Anti-Semitism. Play that clip. Last time we had you on, we were talking about more egregious anti-Semitism and things that people were doing, violence and things of that nature. And this is a little more subtle, but no no different and and no less uh, unfair. I guess you can start off by telling people about what the governor uh, specifically, but also the mayor, uh, have decided they were going to do to the Orthodox community in Brooklyn. Well, that's uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, you know, the governor about a week ago, there's been an uptick in corona cases. Uh, we have an increase, unfortunately, uh, in uh, most states of the union. You know, the governor about 10 days ago uh, made a remark this was the first thing that I heard that got me infuriated. He talked about, I am going to close the synagogues. That was a statement he made. And then, you know, during the past 10, 12 days, it would seem that the only place where there's a problem is within the, what he has called the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, the Hasidic community. He's almost obsessed with the word Jewish and puts that in at every single opportunity. And 
It's a problem because it has unbelievable repercussions. We're seeing it in the street. We're seeing it with assaults. When you target one group that they have the virus, it, 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 you know, we're getting stories from people all over the place. When someone sees someone who is so-called Hasidic, I'm not Hasidic, but to a non-Jew out there, if he saw me with a beard and a yarmulke on my head, it wouldn't matter. I'm a Jew, <laughs> and, and so on. It's like the Jews have the virus, right. Charles. Right. It's, uh, and, and the governor doesn't stop. He would never do what he is doing to the Jewish community, to ever, any other community. You know, when you and I last spoke, there was an unprecedented outbreak of anti-Semitism. And most of it, we knew the perpetrators because there were video surveillance cameras. So in almost every case, we knew who the perpetrators were. And in 99% of the cases, they happened to be black. Would someone blame the black community for that? Absolutely not. And the guy, I don't know what, what's with the governor. You know, he has a new book out about leadership. And he's been such a failure. Everybody knows that uh, with Corona, uh, people uh, will not forget the thousands and thousands of people that were sent to nursing homes who had Corona. This was the governor. He gave those instructions. He's responsible for the deaths of all those people. But uh, the governor's out of control in terms of his obsession with the Jewish community. You know, the communities that have been targeted, nine what we call zip codes, uh, I represented a lot of that area for 36 years in the New York State Assembly. Those areas are made up of Muslims. We got a lot of Pakistanians. We we have all kinds of people living in those different uh, zip codes. But every day and every moment, uh, uh, you know, the governor just comes up with something else about the Jews. Uh, it's crazy. Maybe he's trying to sell books. I don't know. Yeah, well, I noticed that, too. It's funny. As a non-Jew, I noticed that. I'm saying, hmm, it's interesting that he said, I will shut down the synagogues, right? He could have just said, in those areas where there is a problem, I want to address it. But he didn't have to say that. So it did stand out. And and like you say, people talk, especially in this election year, about things you say, especially if you're in a position of power where people follow you or see you having an effect. So they spend, they spend all day talking about it. Every word that comes out of Trump's mouth has repercussions and he should watch what he say, says, which is not you know, fully untrue. But then they go around and they're not noticing that when I first moved here to New York, there was all these attacks on the Asian community. And they claimed that that was coming from people saying, this virus is coming from there and we don't know if you have it or not. Right or wrong, if you know people will react that way, what do you think is going to happen when you say, you know, these Jewish people are doing this, these Jewish people are doing this. They are the ones who aren't wearing masks and things of that nature. Talk about that, though, because you don't, you know, you're Charles, on the mask, pretty normal, right? Yeah. First of all, let me make this clear. And I've done this uh, on television and every other place for, for months and every day over the last two weeks. Wear a mask. Social distancing is important. Do the right thing. Protect yourself and your family. That's not the issue. Mm-hmm. But, Charles, you're right on target. Words, the repercussions of what you say are huge. When you direct things at one particular group constantly, he told the Catholic Church here in Brooklyn, who couldn't open their schools, he said, you guys haven't done anything wrong. 
<laughs> it's the Jews. You know, it's the other part of the, of the community. I mean, how can you do that? I mean, just imagine if Donald Trump would play the same game and do the exact same thing directed against any other community. I mean, people would go crazy. Just imagine the, the, the national media, the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and CNN. They'd go crazy. And the governor is doing this day in, day out. He lied to the leaders of the Jewish community. New York Times reported that. He met with Jewish leaders and had a discussion, said, we got to work together, and told them you could have your synagogues at 50%. This is right before the holiday. Great discussion. Guess what? According to the people at the meeting, the governor stabbed them in the back because literally within a day, he said, you can't have more than 10 people. 10 people. Now, by the way, not all synagogues and not all churches are the same. Some are huge. Some can hold 5,000 people. So the idea that you can only have 10 in a place like that, where you may be able to have hundreds with social distancing, I can understand a small synagogue or church, but, you know, blanket, blanket statement. And another thing, Charles, people in our community, they're already on the verge of being bankrupt. They can't, they can't feed their families. They can't make a living for four or five months. Now the governor comes along and closes all of these establishments. Well, that's something. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and there's more. Yeah, but you talk about being singled out. It's crazy. More with Dove hiking on the other side. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. You're listening to The Liberty Hour with Sean Thompson. Get on the line with Sean by calling 312-642-5600. Welcome back to The Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. Nice try, Sean. I tried. I tried to be Sean. And uh, we were playing an interview I did with Dove Hyken, former New York City Assemblyman founder of Americans Against Anti-Semitism, about Cuomo singling out Jewish people and saying they're the reason that there's a spike in corona. And at the end of the last clip, he was talking about this blanket thing that the Cuomo was doing. He said, I'm just going to close everything down, as opposed to say, you know, like I think he said 10, 15, I think it was 10 people. So every church can only have 10 people, a religious institution, but what if uh, it holds 5,000 people? I mean, you still want to say 10 people? So he was complaining about that. But and that was also, apparently right after he told them they could have 50. Right, right, right. The so next day or so. Out of all sides of the mouth. <laughs> right. But then it goes that he's going on to make a good point about how he doesn't have a problem with enforcing. In fact, he thinks strict enforcement of the rules will be better than locking everybody down because you're punishing more people than you should be. Roll that clip. Well, see, that's a key point. That's, that's the other thing I heard you say that's important. You talked about that saying enforcement is fine, but why don't you do that instead of shutdowns? Why are we going back to the blanket statement? If it's the Jews, quote unquote, why are you closing the Catholic uh, uh, um, churches, right? right? It makes no sense. You just, so you're going to close every store? You know, right. why don't you enforce it? Tell people, and that was your point. You weren't saying don't wear masks. You weren't Absolutely. saying don't, Absolutely. Like, don't shut the city down. Exactly. Well, these establishments, you know what they say to me? They say, Dove, we've been doing everything right. We've been following the rules. Why are we being penalized along with those who are not following the rules? And guess what, Charles? If you live in one particular zip code, okay, you can't shop at the local store. Guess what? You can cross the street to the other zip code and shop. 
I said that last week. I brought this up on the show because, it, you know, it airs in Chicago and a lot of people didn't know it was the national story. I said, what, what you don't know, like Chicago is a town, is a, is a city of neighborhoods, as they say. I said, well, so is New York, but the neighborhoods are smaller. So you can walk two blocks and be in another neighborhood. So I don't know how they think that's going to control anything by saying, stay in your neighborhood. What, are they going to go down and force the people to stay in their neighborhood? But lastly, I want to point this out, too. Let's talk about how the reaction was a little bit different than it was to the Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah, look, uh, look, the point is that uh, people are very, very upset and people are trying to figure out what to do. You know, the governor now, uh, you know, every day it's something else. Uh, he has now threatened schools that he's going to uh, withdraw any uh, financial aid they're supposed to get. Imagine that. He's going to he's going to hurt the kids. This is the thing he did. Another thing he did in the last 24 hours, he's guess what? He said uh, he you know, it's like certain areas like New York, the Jews have a lot of power and therefore the mayor is not doing his job. As you know, everybody knows that both, that the governor is involved sort of like in kindergarten with the mayor of the city of New York, Bill de Blasio. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to outdo each other. There's this unbelievable animosity from the governor to the mayor. So, you know, they, you know, again, leadership, Charles, is this leadership, you know, fighting with the mayors, uh, trying to outdo the mayors? Uh, you know, this is not leadership for a guy who, as I said earlier, Charles, I mean, this guy sent... COVID patients to nursing homes. People Charles, need to know doctor. that as they as they consider, Biden considers him for attorney general. But my point for the BLM, I want to make this clear. You, you are okay with enforcement. You've said that several times, which is fine, but let's be real. We're talking in, a, in an age that everything is about equality and treating everyone the same. Right. Part of this enforcement is fining people, right? Nobody got fined um, when they were out in mass walking down the street Every day, multiple days. I know. What was it yesterday that Hesse got uh, released? Was that yesterday? Uh, he got released on uh, uh, Monday, Monday night. Okay, so he got arrested for inciting a riot. But there's videos of people doing the same thing. And so I'm not saying if you incite a riot, I'm not saying he's guilty. But if you do, you shouldn't be investigated. But why is that happening there? And for days on end, all over the city, you were able to walk in the street and shut down bridges and spit at cops and throw stuff and not enforce it. Charles, you are so on target, and you talk, you're talking about a double standard. That's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You're saying uh, we got a problem with corona, right? People shouldn't gather and to be too close to each other. People should be wearing masks, right? Whoever you are, it applies to you, but that's not the case. The mayor of the city of New York and the governor, you know, he hasn't said anything publicly, but obviously he agrees. They have said point blank. If you are in the Jewish community and there's a problem and you break the rules, we're going to fine you. There were $150,000 worth of fines over the last week in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. But if you are demonstrating, marching, for whatever reason it is, great cause, no one is arguing, you get a pass. It's okay. If you have thousands and thousands of people marching, one on top of the other, they're all on top of, the, and they're not wearing masks. And Charles, I travel throughout parts of New York. You know, there are uh, Muslim groups who are, uh, you know, in their mosque by the hundreds on top of each other, no masks. You know, I went to Central Park. Oh, my God. 
Most people weren't wearing masks. There were large numbers of people on the grass having a good time. So everything is being directed. People watch this. People listen to this. And they say, wait a second. How is that fair, this freaking double standard? The mayor says, if you're demonstrating for a cause, that's important. If you're going to (laughs) synagogue because you are committed to God and you are committed to your family and your community, that's not the same. You know, that. That's not that important. Well, thank you, uh, Doe, for giving us some clarity on this. Thank you, Charles. It's always good to always good to be with you. It's a pleasure, really, an honor. Definitely have you back. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That should definitely be a national story, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more when we talk to Patrick later on in the next hour. But uh, stick with us, and we'll close this thing out in the first hour. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM five sixty. The answer. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Apparently, we're still doing the Sean thing, huh? Cool. You're fine. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I think that the first hour was informative and uh, interesting. We're not ending there. It's going to be just as good the next hour, but... I think the police thing is important to, to, to look, look at and listen to and think about in context. I, I know a lot of people who are on the other side will just say, well, why do I have to think about them? They don't think about the 500, the 200, the 100, the 1,000, whatever number they want to put on it of innocent people who are shot. Uh, obviously, they have a really interesting view of innocent. But I try to not, not to have that argument. I just say, OK, I'm going to give you your argument and say whatever number you give me the number and I'm going to live with it. 2,000? That's your number? Okay, 2,000 innocents. Well, there are far more people that have interactions with police negatively, run, robbing banks, raping people, all that kind of stuff. That's way more than 2,000. Those are police interactions, right? Why don't you kind of at least throw that into the equation so we can have a more nuanced response to police as opposed to every police is shooting an innocent black man in the back on his way to church. And going back to what uh, what your guest was saying, we was talking about you know their their organization. For anybody who didn't hear the first half hour, there's an organization that uh, that helps police who are in a position of being sort of charged under bogus circumstances or at least questionable circumstances. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest problems is that people who may be sympathetic to the police, who may be sympathetic to that cause, will pay attention long enough to have a couple of Facebook arguments. They'll pay attention long enough to have it in the in the news cycle for a day or two, but then they move on. Right. Everybody moves right. on except that guy's organization where you go, I, I'm, I'm blanking on his name and I threw the piece of paper out already. So I apologize. Bert Eiler. Bert Eiler. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they're sort of doing something that uh, everybody else just sort of gives up on. So kudos right. I, I think that's I think it's important because, you know, and it goes both ways. Right. Uh, it's, it's a perfect segue on the top of the next hour. We're going to talk about the Michael Brown case because that's back yeah. in the news for a weird situation, both for the movie and the uh, and the backlash. But we're going to talk about what happened after people left Ferguson. Right. The, the, whatever your thoughts on that case, it didn't go away just because the cameras left. So stick around. We're going to talk to Eli Steele, director of What Killed Michael Brown on the other side. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. But wait, there's more. 
Liberty Hour. Call Sean now at 312-642-5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Hour 2, Charles Love here. And now we're going to shift gears a bit. And not completely, though, because it's still talking about the government, still talking about the police, still talking about the culture. But, you know, a new topic that's, well, an old topic that's new again. We're going to talk about Michael Brown. And this was also um, obviously a really big case at the time, but it's important because this is what one of the starts of BLM came yeah, for from. For those who don't remember, this is Ferguson, Missouri. Yeah, this is Ferguson, Missouri, right? This is hands up, don't shoot. Tell them that. That now they'll know who it is. Oh yeah, yeah that's an Hands up, don't shoot. Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, and it amazes me even now that they still bring up his name. Um, and it oh, was he's so on much the list around. of martyrs, my friend. Oh, he's, what are he's on the the when you see when no, you're progressive friends. No, he's in the top five friends. of the list of martyrs. Oh, yeah. He's in the top five. You see one of your friends with the memes up, right? You know, say their names. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah. well, I'll say like six out of those 15. <laughs> Seriously, I will say right. those six, but the but the but other nine, no. You need to take those off, right? Yes. And, and so it's, it's, it's important. It's kind of like what George Floyd will be down the road. It will, all, it will be a moment in time in the country. It will always be news. People will reference it. And um, so... Because of that and, and what came from it, Shelby Steele, the famed conservative author and, and, and thinker, thought that it would be important to go in deeper. His son's a documentarian and they've done movies together. So the two of them did this movie and it's called What Killed Michael Brown. And you think, OK, that's cool. I mean, especially since everything is still so hot now and everybody's got different sides to every police instance. So you can always go back to this one. People still bring, bring up Trayvon. You could do the same with that one. Uh, but it wasn't police involved. So this is key. And we got a little more information here. You have more eyewitnesses. You had those kind of things. So the movie is coming out. I heard about it and I thought that it would be an important movie and it'd be interesting on its own. Yeah. And then some weird, uh, unexpected controversy came out around it which we'll talk about shortly and that kind of brought some more uh you know some some more eyeballs to the movie and hopefully uh it opened this past friday so hopefully if you haven't seen it you'll go see it and hopefully it did well so i was able to, to uh talk to eli and talk to him about the film we're going to do a couple segments here i'll talk about the controversy then but first i'll let him describe the movie to you this is eli Steele, director of what killed michael brown Obviously, there's this big controversy around the film now we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But I want to start with the movie, uh, why you did it and what you're trying to portray in it. So I got to start out with the question of the film, what killed Michael Brown? My father and I, we were together, we were together when the Michael Brown thing happened. And we kept waiting for the truth to come out because the evidence was kind of coming out. And every time the truth came out, it was being pushed down, and this narrative was taking off, this um, alternative narrative, or what my father called the poetic truth. That narrative was taking off. And it was stunning for us because we had never seen that before. Usually when you have, like, the poetic truth is basically, it's the opposite of the objective truth. The poetic truth has like, a little bit of truth to it. And you just blow it up, show the fact that a white cop shoots the black kid. 
that looks like racism. Well, that's the little kernel of truth, but is it really what happened? Well, the narrative exploded out and just, I mean, just built upon it, and we had never seen that before. Trayvon Martin did not have that. Grady uh, Gray, I mean, uh, Walter Scott, all the others did not have that. But Michael Brown did. And that, was, for us, was a change, a huge shift in the culture that a lie could take a hold of our society. And not only that, but all the institutions in our society embraced it. So we wanted to find out why, why, why that happened. And so that's why we began this journey into making this film. Another thing, because I was fortunate enough to see the film, thanks, and it was great, and I, I truly believe everybody needs to see it, to get context that you don't get to a lot of these stories. And one thing I found interesting in it is you talk to a lot of people local, you talk to white residents, you talk to black residents, you talk to people on the left, you talk to people on the right, you talk to police officers, you talk to all this. You play some of the facts, some, some grand jury testimony, Eric Holder. So what's interesting, though, is in all that, you get a little bit, you, you, you get a bigger picture every time you talk to somebody else. You add some layers on. But in that, you, we as the people watching the film feel like we learn a little bit more. Yet what's telling is you, you, you talk about, I think, the fifth and the sixth anniversary because they've been doing it every year. And so you show the people in the, in the street with the uh, candles and the vigil and Michael Brown's father speaking and talking about justice and things of that nature. It, it's kind of weird because we're on the outside watching it saying, but we know so much now. I get it the first time, maybe the first year we didn't know all this stuff, that the police investigation and then the federal investigation on top of that, we know so much now. Why are people still constantly saying that? And I write about this all the time, not knowing as much about the case and, and seeing a film at the time, I was working on the book and I referenced this case. And I said, but I went through the grand jury testimony. I know what the eyewitnesses said. And I said, yet BLM still, when they run down the list of people who were wrongfully killed by police, his name still comes up. So why is that? It's what they want to believe. And um, as my father said, it's a gift in power. If you're, on the, if you're on the left and you believe in the critical race theory, then you believe that racism is the root of everything. Mm-hmm. But everything is reduced down to that level. So that's why Eric Holder has no problem going to Ferguson because he knows he cannot condemn the police officer's racism. But he can, but he can do so by proxy, by condemning this town as racist. Mm-hmm. If this mm-hmm. town is racist, you must be racist. Right, because you're in the town. I think the thing I don't want to give the film away that most people will be most shocked about is the um, store, the store owners, and what uh, and what how they just yeah. kept trying to move the the villain. So the villain was Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson left the force, and he's gone in the ether, and no one knows where he is. The, uh, Eric Holder came into town and made the villain Ferguson, but that store owner is still there, and everything seems to be his fault. They have to keep the protest going. So they should look for a new target. And yeah, I don't want to give the film away, but there's something that happened for the store. There's a big difference between the fourth anniversary and the fifth anniversary. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you see the film, you see, you see the evolution. So you see exactly what we're talking about. Like year one, it was Darren Wilson. Year two, it was his titty. And then it becomes a new target. The year four is the store. And the right. year five is now something else. Yeah, yeah. And, Who knows what it'll be the, the, the next year and the next year, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's the power of the film is that we, we bring in, my father 
interviewing Al Sharpton like 30 years ago over the East Def Hawking, uh, the, the scratch of killing at East Def Hawking mm-hmm. in, in Hirsch. You can actually find the documentary online, of course, Seven Days in Benson Hirsch. Mm-hmm. But you see the same pattern. And Michael Brown is clearly an escalation. I mean, it was just beyond the pale. It never happened. And I don't know if you ever recover from it because you have to remember this stomach institutional power. There's all this power in the, in the bishop narrative. And if, you, if they lose that power, then what do they have? Why are they stiff? Well, I said I was going to get to the controversy, but I do want to ask one last question because every time these things are so heavy and, and, and we know they're, they're perpetual and they keep going on, but I try to at least get from these wise people, filmmakers and people, academics, what they think the solution is. Because we got to say, so we can argue all day, but at some point we got to say, what do we do? So what, what do we do what, what, in, in the case, either from, you know, trying to, convert those in the middle who aren't sure, get people to pay attention, or change this racial narrative? What do we do? Well, I mean, we as a society just need to be very honest. And we need to stop, stop treating black people as different people. It's really racist. I mean, I, I, I always ask people, like, for example, when people were crying over George Floyd, which I understand, and I fully sympathize towards that. But I was they were why did that makes you feel that way. And yet, I told you before that over 20 children, 20 children were shot in Stingua. BLM did not show up. You just, you just said, oh, that's, that's bad. But you didn't have this emotional outpouring. Mm-hmm. So we really need to stop treating black people as different people. And I would say, why would you treat a black, why would you make a different set of rules for a black kid? that you will never make for your own children. You know, you, have, you need to have the same expectation. And yes, as a society, we need to improve and make sure that the equality of opportunity versus penalties of racism these days, we need to make sure that that's more step. For example, in LAUSD, you can graduate from high school in Los Angeles with a 1.0 GPA. That affects about 20 to 25,000 kids. We have about this about seven, close to 700,000 kids in our system. Well, you are now creating more Ferguson, more future Ferguson, because you gradually kids that nobody wants to employ. And it's gradually because we treat them differently. We lower our expectations for them. And I'm not saying that that's pulled up by your bootstraps. I mean, of course, we need help. Make sure that, um, that they have a way upward and do our best as a society. I mean, you're, you're only as good as the way you treat them. They're less unfortunate in your society, and we need to be honest with them. And that's what they are doing in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. So when you ask me what the solution is, I'll, how about if I just, I'll just quote um, the guy that runs the Salvation Army. You're not able to include the interview in the film. We have too much. But he said very simply, we usually measure success in the Salvation Army by how many people we bear and how many people slept in our bed. But all that was doing is perpetuating poverty. Now what we do is we look for the spark in each individual. We look and find out what they are connected to. Oh, that five-year-old girl must be a writer. Okay, who in St. Louis is a writer? And, and we'd be willing to mentor that girl for life. 
Coming up, more with Eli Steele, director of What Killed Michael Brown. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. And here is the second half of our interview with Eli Steele, director of What Killed Michael Brown. Well, we first talked about the film. You had the film done. You had a trailer. You wanted to create some buzz and send it out to some people. But tell the people what you were surprised by, what happened in these uh, comments and responses to the film. I took on the ad for Facebook. I targeted a, a, a conservative um, institution. The response was 99.9% negative. It was over 1,000 comments, and the comments, like these people did not have any intellectual curiosity. They should literally start Michael Brown. They wanted to offer up their own condemnation of the movie, which was, you know, Michael Brown killed himself. So that was that was a little surprise. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was disappointing. You you because how would you learn? How would you become better? Mm-hmm. And then some of them called you all. This another liberal, you know, crazy liberal hack making a movie. Why don't you get out of here with this liberal propaganda? Exactly. Or why you should stop supporting BLM or. <laughs> and, um, yeah, no, no, this is not quite that kind of movie. If you think about it, we interviewed some pretty hardcore supporters of the, um, uh, some of the more violent protesters, but they were very non-judgmental sort of person. They were Christian. They wanted to make sure, they wanted to try to reduce the violence, but they were interacting with some of the more violent protesters. I could have very easily stigmatized those people. I'd be associated with that crowd. Instead, you should take a humble approach, you listen to them, you hear what they have to say, and they surprise you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of them even went on to bash the Democrat Party. Right. So you said, you know, and she gave a very eloquent explanation from her point of view. But imagine, I took the attitude that some of the people took towards my film. You have never seen her. Right. Exactly. I was just surrounding myself with people who think the way I do when you a boring movie. Yeah, and I think that adds to the film that you have those people in it, too. Like I said, everybody kind of knows Shelby Steele, so they might go the other way, which (laughs) some people did, as we can get to. But it's just sad that you targeted. So basically, you said, okay, let me find right-leaning magazine or something, and who follows them? So I want the people who follow them to see this. And to be fair, we know that these commenters were conservative by the things they were saying. No liberal's going to bash the movie and say, stop sounding like a crazy liberal, or say, you know, law and order, we need more cops. I'd celebrate that conference or whatever. So we know that they weren't on the left. So I think it's kind of, in, in a sense, an indictment of society. But it, your problems didn't end there because you had an issue with Amazon that you're dealing with now, you had the film that was supposed to be, because um, uh, it's streaming, I mean, in a moment you can tell everybody where they can see it, but you wanted Amazon to be one place to stream it and tell us what happened with Amazon. Yes, um, Amazon was the first choice because it has the, um, the fastest upload time. So in other words, you only need about two or three weeks before your release date to get the film onto the platform. So that's why we picked it, because we wanted to release the film in, um, uh, in before, the, before the election. And so we pushed, and then we got the film up. 
And by October 1st, you were placed into what they call content review. And, you know, me, I, I'm thinking, you know, we made a film, film, a comparison to film. It's a, a hard-hitting film, but it's pretty fair, and it's not a conspiracy film or anything like that. And so it never occurred to me the content meant the story. I thought the content review meant this technical aspect of the film. So I kept waiting, like, what's wrong with the film? Is it the caption file? Is the, see the, see the video file get corrupted or something like that? Send them email, and I mean, I'm stressed out. Um, and then finally, um, last night, we get the email, and they said that your film uh, does not pass the quality level for our platform. And you cannot reach to make your film, and you cannot appeal there. And so at that point, I realized the content review was really about the story. There was nothing wrong with the film technically, because if it was a technical problem, all you do is fix it and re-upload. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And because they make money off of a film, you know, they get 50% of the film. Wow. Yeah. They, they That's speak. saying no to 50% of a film. Wow. And now you actually have made yourself the gatekeeper of what's appropriate for our culture, what's appropriate for the Amazon viewers should watch. And they have other films by fir- uh, about Michael Brown on the exactly. platform, right? Exactly, they have, um, yeah, at least two or three of them. They even have one on um, George Floyd already. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, but still, I mean, we quote the witnesses. So in other words, we don't, we're not, we report the facts. We show facts that other media sources don't, don't show. I would give anybody a dollar if they disagree with me. I know that once you watch this film, even if you disagree with the film, you're not going to be able to argue that Amazon was right in, in rejecting the film. Absolutely no way. So now you have a film tacked by the, by the right, because they think you're a, a left-wing propagandist, and attacked by the left, uh, saying that it's some um, right-wing stuff and we refuse to put it on our platform. So what do, what do you think this ends up? I mean, it's early yet. You got a couple of days to your release date on Friday. Do you think that this will be a boon for the movie? Do you think this is going to stall it? Or what, what are your predictions there? Well, I, I, hope, I hope that we should turn this issue a positive. Um, I know there's always a learning curve for Trinity. Um, and this film certainly is a new film. It's a provocative title, title but the re- and we've been told many times, change the title change your title, but then, no, no, no. Once you watch the film, you see how key to, to um, the title is to the content. And, and you know, the Amazon reviewers saw that. And, and, you know, as the artist, do we bow down to what the masses want or do we hold our ground? And I think it's very important to hold your ground because that's mm-hmm. how you make people see things differently. So I'm really hopeful that um, we keep the momentum going we're getting more eyeballs on this. I really want this to reach as large as large of an audience as possible. So I'm thankful that we have a freedom of speech issue here, even though Amazon's a private company. But they are not a private company in the way of a much smaller bakery down the street. Yet. Right. It's a massive behemoth. And we are losing a lot of revenue not being on that platform. I mean, right. they probably control about what. 30 to 45% in the market. Right. And it's also important with the free speech uh, angle is that it's just kind of like the athletes and all that kind of stuff. It's always important to say, I always try to point out that being a private company, you do have the free speech. You can do whatever you want. You can 
do this with the film, but you can't act like you're not free to deal with those repercussions as well. So I can still complain if I'm treated unfairly, right? Right. You know, and, and this is definitely what happened, right? Yeah, all those, all those companies that, you know, were in segregation. I mean, they were, I mean, yeah, you had to boycott them. You had to, you had to bring them to the stenches. They were private companies. They were written in the rights to do stuff. And, you know, even though they're private, I mean, publicly you cannot do that. But, we, yeah, we, I think we have an obligation. It's, you, that's what, when I got that email last night, it was a shock. It was like, oh, wow, I'm that guy. So for now, for me, it should be on that other side. It, uh, it's a bit of a shock. So if that can happen to me, then where's the line? Is the line like now in the middle? A friend of mine made a joke. He said, oh, come on, Eli. You know, the Amazon would be anti-racist by, um, by rejecting you because you don't subscribe to BLM. You don't subscribe to the anti-racist ideology. Right. So Amazon would be morally right in rejecting your film. Right, right. That's the way they. That's the way they view things now. So I mean, tell everybody where they can see it, so that uh, you get more uh, more downloads. Uh, obviously, not on Amazon, but where, where can <laughs> they find find the film? Yeah, um, the best the best way you go, the best place you go to is um, killed, Um And and the plus side is that everything to Jason Riley thing happened. We've had people coming to the website and see ordering um, DVDs, ordering Blu-rays. Awesome. I might be you know, just like just going down, which is great, and pre-ordering the film. So, um, so the controversy has been uh, very helpful in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, our goal, and any and any filmmaker's goal, is to spread the word of the film. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe you just need to go back now, find the Facebook post from all of those uh, blind conservatives and tell them, see, the left doesn't like me. Go back and download the film. Well, it's been a pleasure, uh, Eli. I thank you for uh, spending some time with me and telling us about the film and hope that everybody will go see what killed Michael Brown. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much, Charles. We're we're talking to you. We're going to talk about that a little more later because I think that's pretty important. But that was Eli Steele. Thank you for your time. Go to whatkilledmichaelbrown.com and download the movie. Coming up, we talk to Patrick Brutus, the frustrated Democrat. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. Now, back to the Liberty Hour. Call Sean now at 312-642-5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. And I need to apologize to my uh, next guest. I bumped, I I moved this segment around. Eli and I went a little longer. So I didn't want to have to keep cutting up the interview. But uh, Patrick Brutus, the frustrated Democrat, is with us. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, Charles. How's it going? Good evening. Happy, you know, happy weekend. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Even we though gotta... I might have been bumped down, I wasn't <laughs> cut, so it's good. Well, look, but now you got three segments instead of two. You can look at it that way. So we got a lot to cover. So first I want to start with, um, I'm pretty sure you saw the uh, Sun-Times article about the spending. Um, yeah. But I don't know if you, when you saw it, because it's been updated. Because when I, I just opened it again, I'm like, this is not what it said the first time. They actually put numbers in for the uh, property tax increase now. You know, last week we were talking about all the taxes, the fair taxes, that or the other. 
And I was saying, just scorch earth it and just put it all down. And Macbeth was like, stop it. Yep. You're just saying that because you don't have to pay it. And Lightfoot says she has to fix it. We have to fix it ourselves. So we got a uh, $1.2 billion shortfall and we're going to fix it. But before you tell me what the problem is, you recall last week I was say, you were talking about the taxes and how when you only tax a segment of people that you run them out of the city. And I was talking about Cuomo right. said that. Listen to Cuomo. I think I was talking to you and the black table about that. And, you know, right. because Macbeth is great. He has the clip. Play what Cuomo said about uh, taxing the rich. Maybe he doesn't. But anyway, um, so, yeah, tell me what you think about this tax thing. Well, you know, it's being reported that we're going to have a $94 million property tax increase in addition to 350 you know, jobs being cut. And so this is uh, the most uh, untenable thing to propose during um, the financial crisis that we've been in, in, you know, in, in, in this time. So it, it doesn't make sense, but you know what? We're we're really against the wall, and ninety four million dollars though doesn't get us anywhere. If you think about it, think right? about when when when, I mean, when um uh what's what's the guy's name? The guy with the finger. I don't even remember him now. Rahm Emanuel. Yeah. His ta- his property tax increase was five hundred million. Five hundred and thirty. Yes. Right. Five hundred plus. <laughs> and that didn't and do they anything. It. Right, but it didn't really do anything. We're back in this hole, and we would have been in a hole without COVID, so don't say that. It just wouldn't have been as fast. So it didn't fix anything. So what makes you think that $94 million is going to do it? You got less money, and you're going to make a difference, but the 500 didn't do it. But 94 is the right number. So you're going to be in trouble either way. So how does this play into that fair tax you were telling me about? It's just another on top, right? And so, like, I think what I said last week was on, on the black table and, you know, some other places I may have said, this is what I did say. I said, imposing a tax that's targeted for the rich is silly because those are the people who are most likely to either A, go around the tax, B, move away from the tax, or C, you know, they could pay the tax the first year, but the next year they won't, right? Because they'll pull the Trump and get the right, you know. Well, I'll give you a better C. The C C can be they own a business and they'll raise the cost on the products that you buy. But it's a perfect segue. Forget about that. That, of course, absolutely. That's that's part of the the way they pay it, right? Is they raise the the cost of products on us, right? Right. So you you said that before, and I said it before when we were on the show, and, and here's the, I think he's got the clip now. Forget about me and you, because you're frustrated and I'm a conservative. Let's see what Cuomo has to say about taxing the rich. Oh, yeah. Our population, 1% of the population pays 50% of the taxes. If you pass a piece of legislation that requires New York to raise taxes, raise a millionaire's tax, in this economic environment in New York City... Uh, where we're struggling, we used to be worried millionaires tax people might leave. No, no, no. The burden shifted. We're trying to get people to come back. We're trying to get them to come back. Could he talk to Pritzker? <laughs> so listen, people. How do you get them to come back? But you get crystal come clear. Back? Crystal clear. Let, right. but we got we to gotta let that marinate, guys, for a minute. You liberals, you leftists who think I'm just a conservative and I'm just, you know, you know speaking on behalf of somebody. I'm speaking on behalf right. of common sense. Andrew Cuomo, the guy you're considering as your attorney general, said, if we tax them, they will leave. Well, guess what? If they're not there, if they're in a different state, 
they don't have to pay the tax. So you're really taxing empty seats. And if you're taxing empty seats, no one's paying the tax in reality anyway. You're back to Trump paying $750. Hold it, Patrick. We're going to go to break. We're going to come back. We'll talk about this, some other things, some craziness in New York. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. You're listening to The Liberty Hour with Sean Thompson. Get on the line with Sean by calling 312-642-5600. Welcome back to The Liberty Hour. Charles Love here talking with Patrick Brutus, the frustrated Democrat. I got a lot here, but if you you got something you want to say to tie up the tax thing and the issues with the money in Chicago, go right ahead. I just think it's, uh, you know, you got the city tax coming. You've got the Illinois fair tax looming. You've got Cook County, which has ridiculous, you know, taxes. And this continues to make Chicago and the state of Illinois one of the most expensive places to live in a declining uh, population. Um, I don't know how this state stays above water. And maybe what you suggested on a number of occasions, burn it down, start over is what we need to do. But let's go ahead and talk about, we, you know, let's, let's keep it moving. All right. It's um, crazy. Crazy. I ta- Amazing time to be alive. I want to tell COVID. Um, you and uh, Macbeth, please come in and help out because you, I, I go to you too. You two know what's going on. You pay attention. You bring a common sense approach, but you pay more attention than I do. And so help me out here. So, I got a couple things, and, and you know I hate saying the T word, but this kind of involves the guy. But, okay, so Trump kept saying, even in the debate, we're really close. We're really close. We're really close. We're going to have a vaccine in November. We're going to have a vaccine this year. And everybody's, he's crazy. It won't even have Fauci in spring. Other people say summer. Uh, uh, Kamala said, I'll, I'll kill myself before I take it. Right. So I was reading the Wall Street right. Journal, Wall Street Journal yesterday, and it said that Pfizer basically is done. It, it, this is so crazy. I thought that I thought that people's lives are supposed to be more important. Right. So they I, you have to find this is in the Wall Street Journal. They say Pfizer's ready, but they're going to hold it until after the election because they don't want people to think it was rushed for the election. Did you get that? So wow. we got something that can help you all. This pandemic and the health of millions of people, we're not going to give it to you yet, because if we give it to you now, that'll make Trump right. So we have to hold it. Yeah, that's terrible. See, that's they're playing politics with people's lives and they shouldn't be doing that. But here's they the other thing. But if they hold it to the end of the month, isn't it still this year? Now, they'll say he it's was wrong year. about the exact date, but everybody else who was saying he was wrong was saying next year, summer, you know, 2029. And now, but they're not going to word it that way because they'll make him look good. Next, he's been having rallies and everybody on the left has been like burning their eyelashes saying he's going to kill people. Um, tell me the difference between a rally and a women's march. <laughs> yeah, you saw that yesterday, right? They had thousands of people. Yep. They had thousands of people and they didn't have snopes out there fact checking how many folks had masks they didn't do any of that stuff they just said this is great it's a peaceful rally you know liberal policy advocating advocate um 
you know, um, advocacy going on. It's all good. No question. Don't even raise the issue. But Right. You see, so this is Trump, just simple stuff. They want to make it about election. I'm just a common sense guy. If, if COVID is as bad as you're saying it may be, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I'm not going to argue with you. It's that bad. Well, then you can't say Trump is killing people by they're literally saying he's killing people by having rallies and then have millions of people in the street in multiple cities. They were in D.C., Multiple, they were in L.A., yeah. they were everybody. It's crazy. Okay, last one. Last COVID thing. So Trump, so Trump, because I want to get as much as I can. So Trump, you know, even your boy Terrell, because, you know, he's one of those uh, left-wing thinkers who doesn't think, said that Trump killed 200,000 people. So so Trump killed everybody who died of COVID. It's his fault. He killed them, blood on his hands. Cuomo is considered by your guy, Mr. Frustrated Democrat, to be the AG. And he wrote a book about leadership. He killed tens of thousands. I don't know if you heard the early um, oh, segment with, with yeah. Dove. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dove. Yeah, he, he sent people back. He's like, you sick? You got COVID? It mostly kills old people? Ah, screw it. Go back to the, go back to the old phone. What's the worst that could happen? Signed an executive. Yeah. They said we, they, they stopped at the door and said, you can't come in here. He signed an executive order and said, you must let them back in. Yeah. And then, you know, the nursing home thing is a tremendous issue for him. But yet he is going out there now and denying that he ever ordered uh, nursing homes to take these senior patients. And so he's just revisionist history himself and he's getting away with it. But you're absolutely correct. Trump killed 218,000 people and Cuomo saved uh, 40,000 people in New York. That's, that's, that's the way, you know, MSDNC wants to run the story. So let it be. Okay. I'm sure you're going to have some Chicago. you can't win for losing. Right. I, mean, you can't win I just want some and honesty. I agree with Trump. We, you could beat up on Trump all day and Trump take Trump is wrong. And if he's wrong, I'm like, I don't care. He's not my buddy. He's a grown man. Defend right. him if you want. Right. But then you can't just turn around the next breath and say, this guy who did the same thing was right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Either Trump was also right or they're both wrong. You can't have it both ways. You know, that's what they do right. with Biden. So, you, so I, what? Biden was a right. racist, but he's not anymore. He's a different racist. You know, whatever. Right. And people will say, I'm not going to go back 47 years to check his history. What I want to do is focus on today, and Trump is a racist. But then to substantiate that Trump is a racist, they go back to the Central Park Five. So, oh, no, not even. You know. Every time I ask somebody what he did was racist, they say in 1972 he didn't rent to somebody. I mean, you weren't even born. Why are you worried about that? But anyway. I just want consistency. Yeah. That's always been my argument. Now, you talk about what's going on in both right. cities. I think I'm going to go first. I'm going to do New York. We go to the break. You follow up with your Chicago numbers and what's going on here. But I'm sure everybody's at least heard of the Guardian Angels, right? So yeah. they're, st- they're still out there in, in, in New York, and it's crazy because they were in Chelsea. Now they're in the Upper West Side. And then the other day, they, 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 he's asking for more volunteers because he can't cover every place they're calling him. And he's in Upper Upper East Side as of two days ago. And the quote from the magazine says, these are places, if you would have ever suggested years ago that they needed the guardian angels, they would have said, you're out of your mind, and now he's there. That's what's going on in New York. After the break, Patrick Brutus will tell me what's going on in Chicago. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson on AM560, The Answer. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here with Patrick Brutus, the frustrated Democrat. What do you got, Patrick? Well, you know, the biggest story I think this week is a story that not not too many people are talking about. And it's the Chicago uh, administration wants to start going back to school 
starting in the end of November, early December, uh, with K through three third grade students, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to start this on a trial basis because I think the, uh, the infection rate is very low. And obviously, of course, CTU is balking and pushing back, and, you know, they're not happy about it. But what I find uh, very ironic about this is that everybody who had an opposing view of coronavirus always stated that the children and, you know, kids, youngsters, were virtually impervious to coronavirus. And the pro-open-up-the-school, you know, people were saying, you know, let the kids go back to school. And everyone said, no, we must trust the science. Well, here we are, you know, 200 days later, and everybody says, well, the science now is showing us that kids are basically, you know, 99% uh, immune to coronavirus. Or not immune, but like, you know, the infection rates are very, very extremely low. And so here now we're talking about opening up schools because kids can, you know, fight off this coronavirus and should be back in the classroom. And I just find that whole twist of events very ironic, right? I'm still unraveling that, but I'm just, you know, interested to see why we consider CTU, the teachers, as frontline workers. And I I love my teachers. I have really good teachers that, you know, educate my children. So I'm really happy with the teachers, and I've been in good schools. And so my my position here does not represent the whole. But, like, the, the union not wanting to go back to work and educate our children when the science apparently says now that they should, could, and can is just simply ironic to me. Um, probably, you know, more details to come, but I think that's probably the biggest little story that, you know, will unravel this week for sure, if not next. So we'll we'll keep an eye on this story. And the big part will be whether the teachers union allows them to do it because, you know, they, they, they actually run the schools. Um, I don't oh, yeah. know if you you yeah. heard also when when Eli was talking about uh, what killed Michael Brown and to use an example of how when I asked him about solutions, I, I, the, the state the stat he gave shocked me. Did you hear that he said in LA County you can graduate from high school with a one GPA? Did you catch that? That's why we're behind. That's why we're behind uh, the rest of the world. Right, and, and this did you see San Diego? Uh, they, oh the San Diego Unified School District is changing the grading system to combat racism. Because this is what I mean by the, they want to replace racism with racism. So what it says is penalizing students for late assignments. They're going to stop doing that. Isn't that implying that black folks are late? Yes, it is. <laughs> so that's Zing. What it it does. so we're going to stop racism by letting, letting people turn the stuff in late because that's that's going to be those new colored people is basically what. Well, they're I remember your I, I remember one time your mayor said he was late to an event because he was on CP time and remember that. Um, <laughs> I do. You Google I do. that. Yeah. We got, so we you know everybody few, wants to. Yeah. You you Go got ahead. a few seconds yeah. here. You want to talk about Ice Cube? You got something to say about Ice Cube? Oh. I, I love what Ice Cube did. He did what everybody should be doing, is taking the policy to both sides and making sure that everybody sees it so we can see who's actually going to support it. And guess what? The Democrats said, hold that thought. We'll get back to you after November 3rd if we win. And then why, so, would, we need again, to, why would we need to get back to you after we won? We don't need right, to exactly. kick, kick rocks. Right. But, you know, the the yeah, the left continues to berate Ice Cube and telling him to stay in his lane is the biggest affront to black people everywhere. Because if you have a great idea and you can get it to the table, then there's no other higher table than the than the White House. And so it's just deplorable what's going on. But it's also an affront because they didn't tell LeBron to stay in his lane. 
He's an idiot. They didn't tell Jamel Hill to stay in her lane. Lane, she's a moron. Yeah, so you can be you can yeah. be dumb and speak as long as you say what we want you to say. Well, thanks, Patrick. As long as you're for the left. Love exactly. you guys. Yeah, it was great to have you, Patrick Bruce, frustrated Democrat. Second hour's up already. He's playing me off. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week to the Liberty Hour. I have to go home. I have to go home. I have to go home.